We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaree. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all of their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Thanks, Nicole. Let me uh, join Dave in welcoming you. We're so glad you're here. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I've not met you yet, I would love to get to greet you and learn your name uh, after the service. We, um, if you've been around, you know that we've been in a series in the life of Peter. And uh, Peter, more than any of the other disciples, gives us a picture of the Christian life. Peter is mentioned four times as much as the other 11 disciples are mentioned altogether. And because of that, it gives us a picture of what is the Christian life? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it like? And today we come to this very famous passage where Jesus walks on water. And uh, right in the middle of this story, he looks at Peter and he says, you of little faith. What is this passage about? Uh, this passage is, it's all about faith, actually. That's what this passage is about. And faith is something that we need to talk about because it is something that many people are abandoning today. The statistics are alarming. Uh, one third of Christians who attended church before COVID have stopped going altogether. Some of you are still watching online. We want you to come back, come back in person. But isn't that nearly a third of Christians who went to church before COVID have stopped going altogether? Uh, in the year 2000, nearly one half of Americans identified as Christians. And in the last 20 years alone, that number has been cut in half. 
During that same time frame, the number of nuns, people who identify as atheist or agnostic, has doubled. It's gone from 11 to 21%. People are abandoning faith, and I think one of the reasons they're abandoning it is because we've misunderstood it. We've, there's a lot of confusion about faith. Some people would say, you know, faith is opposed to reason. Faith means you have to surrender your mind. This is what Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and others would say. They'd also say that faith is actually the problem of all the division and hatred in the world today. There'd be many people who would point at what's happening in the Middle East right now between Israel and Hamas and say, you know what that comes down to? Faith and religion. If we just removed those things from the world, things would be so much better. There is a lot of confusion about faith. Is there anything that can help us? This passage can help us. And it actually gives us four snapshots of faith. Uh, and each of them tells us something really important about faith. So here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to see that faith means getting out of a boat. That's the first snapshot. It means sinking in a storm. It means resting in the Savior's hand. And then it means going out to the crowds. Okay? So first, faith means getting out of a boat. Let me give you a little bit of context for our story today. Right before these verses... Uh, is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's where Jesus feeds, he multiplies the five loaves of bread and the two fish. It's this great miracle, and the crowds are ready to make Jesus king because they think, wow, this guy's powerful, and he can help us defeat the Romans. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to defeat the Romans. He came to defeat sin and death and evil, and he didn't come to do it through conquering and through power and strength he came to do it through being conquered he came to do it through a cross he came to do it through weakness uh, and this is why in our passage when we picked up right in verse 22 it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them immediately because Jesus knows that his disciples are just as susceptible at this point as, as the crowds of, of getting him wrong of getting caught up in kind of the fury of this and the enthusiasm of, oh, wow, look, he's, he's come to like put us in charge and give us power. And so he sends them away, right? And during the middle of the night, the disciples they encounter this great storm and they're freaking out because they're surrounded by wind and the waves. But then Peter sees Jesus walking on water and verse 29 says, he got out of the boat and came toward Jesus. And I want you to just freeze frame that picture in your mind, that picture of Peter getting out of the boat. Because that is the first snapshot of faith that we get in this passage. When Peter gets out of that boat, he is saying, I've got more trust in Jesus to get me through this storm than trust in this boat. P Peter, Peter does not go from having no faith to having some faith. No, Peter goes from having faith in the boat to having faith in Jesus. He's simply transferring his faith from one thing to the next. And here's what this snapshot actually teaches us. It teaches us this. It teaches us that everyone has faith. Faith is inescapable. Faith is unavoidable. And I'm so sure someone in this room is saying, I don't have faith, 
I have reason. Faith is what religious people have. No. Let me gently, let me, let me strongly push back on that. Faith is not something religious people have. Faith is something that all people have. Because all of us are living out of realities that we actually can't prove. And let me see if I can convince you of this on both a moral level and a scientific level, okay? Think about morality for just a moment. Uh, Say you believe that every person is created equal. I hope you believe that. I hope everybody in this room believes that. It has massive implications for our world. It means that racism is wrong and genocide is wrong and sex trafficking is wrong. Uh, It means that we should protect the vulnerable. Every person is created with dignity and equal. It means that we should love one another. But if you're here today and you don't believe in God, and you think that the world is just the product of random chance, let me ask you a question. What is the basis on which you believe in human equality and human dignity and the idea that we should love others and care for the vulnerable? Uh, Vladimir Solovyev, who was a Russian philosopher, he said this. He said, man descended from apes by a process of the strong eating the weak. Therefore, we must love one another. And what is he doing? He is actually, he's actually poking holes in the belief that human value and human rights and the obligation to love those who are vulnerable flows from the idea that God does not exist. He's saying those two things are not compatible. See, if there is a God who created every single person in his image, then it makes total sense to believe those things. But if there's not a God who created every person in his image, then to believe that every person is equal and to believe in human rights and and care for the vulnerable, then what is that? To believe those things is what? What Solovyov is saying is it's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith. And I hope you believe those things, but you have to at least acknowledge it's not really compatible with belief that God does not exist. To say God doesn't exist, but human beings have dignity and equality, that's actually not something you can prove, but it's something you're choosing to believe. Think about this on a scientific level, just for a moment. I think this is, science is an important one because I did college ministry at Cal for 11 years, and I heard a lot of college students say, you know, I don't believe in religion, I believe in science. I have science. Religious people have faith. Um, Alan Lightman, who is a famous physicist. He teaches at MIT. He's also an atheist. He wrote a book called The Accidental Universe. And uh, he he talks in this book about all the variables that had to come together in order for life to exist. Things like strong and weak nuclear force and just the right amount of dark energy and all these other things that they didn't teach me a single thing about in seminary, so I'm going to stop talking about it like I know what I'm talking about. But he says the question we have to ask is, you know, why do these exact things have to happen in this exact way in order for life to exist? And he says, you know, there's a couple options. Some would say, he calls it fine-tuning, the idea that there's some sort of God or deity or being who, who turned all the, 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 uh, the dials and the knobs just right. 
so that the, the universe could come into being. And what Leibniz says is, if you believe that, it actually takes faith because you can't prove that. And he's right, you can't prove that. Uh, but then he talks about his own view of how things got started. And, and Leibniz actually holds to the multiverse thesis. What he believes is that our universe is just one of zillions of universes out there. And this is what he says in his book about that. He says, we are an accident from the cosmic lottery. We drew the one universe that allowed life. Now, as for these other universes, we can't see any of these other universes. We can't observe them. We can't prove them. Thus, to explain what we see in the world, we must believe in what we cannot prove. What is he saying? He's saying that everyone has faith. No matter how religious or irreligious you are, even secularism, secularism is not the absence of beliefs, it's just the presence of a whole other set of beliefs. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, what is your faith in? And that actually leads to the next question, which is, why have faith in Christianity? Why have faith in Jesus? And the Bible says there's one answer to that question. One answer. It's because it's true. That's the one reason to believe. See, there's this great misperception that people have that faith is opposed to reason. Faith and reason do not go together. They are mutually exclusive. That faith means you have to check your brain at the door. But that is not the way that Christianity talks about faith at all. And it's not what we see from Peter in this passage. Why does Peter freak out when he sees Jesus walking on the water? Peter doesn't say, oh, Jesus, you're finally here. He, no, he thinks it's a ghost. You know why? Because just like people don't walk on water in 2023, <laughs> they did not do it 2,000 years ago. So what is Duke Peter doing? He's thinking. He's thinking, actually. And then why does Peter get out of the boat when he recognizes Jesus and Jesus calls him? And why is Peter and the other disciples at, at, the, at the end of this passage, why are they, it says they are worshiping him in the boat. Why are they worshiping him? Here's why. Because they are thinking. They're saying, oh my gosh, we've, we've seen him feed the 5,000. We've seen him heal the blind. We've seen him heal the lame. We have heard his claims. This, he is who he says he is. And here's the point. Faith, faith is more than just intellectual assent, but it is certainly not less. It is not less than that. And if you are here today and you are exploring Christianity, we're so glad you're here. But I want you to know what the Bible says is there's one reason and one reason alone to believe in Christianity. It's not because it's relevant or fulfilling, but because it's true. And if it's true, it will be all of those things and more. And so you have to start where Peter starts. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Did he really come? Did he really die? Did he really rise again? Did these things happen? Christianity is either true or false. And if it's false, of course you shouldn't believe it. But if it's true, you have no option but to believe it and to take whatever boat your faith is in, and we all have it, and to transfer it onto Jesus. It's the first snapshot of faith. Here's the second. Faith means sinking in a storm. 
In verse 29, Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on water, but then he sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. And you kind of wonder, how many steps did Peter take before he started to sink? Was it one? Was it two? Was it five? It could not have been many, because literally it takes all of one verse for Peter to go from walking on water to sinking. It takes all of one verse for Peter to go from someone who is full of faith to someone who is full of doubt. And I think this is one of the most hopeful scenes in all of the Gospels. Think about who Peter was. Peter wasn't just one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' three closest disciples. He, he, was one, he became one of the primary leaders of the early church. Get this, Peter wrote books in the Bible. He wrote part of the New Testament. God used him in incredible ways, and yet he doubted. Now, what is this snapshot of faith teaching us? Here's what it's teaching us. It's teaching us that according to the Bible, doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Every Christian is like Peter. We are, we are a, a simultaneously a mixture of belief and unbelief. Sometimes people think that when you become a Christian, you'll no longer doubt. But then when doubt comes, which it will, it sends you into this spiritual tailspin. And you think, well, gosh, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't doubt. But nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know that every, every person in the Bible struggles with doubt? Every person Think about Abraham. You know what the Bible calls Abraham? It calls Abraham the father of faith. It calls him the father of faith. And in Genesis chapter 15, God makes this promise to Abraham. He promises to give Abraham a child, and Abraham is full of faith. But guess what? In Genesis chapter 16, one chapter later, Abraham decides to take matters in his own hands, and he sleeps with his servant, Hagar. In one chapter, he goes from someone who is full of faith to someone who is full of doubt. He goes from someone who's trusting God to someone who's not trusting God. Think about Israel. In Exodus chapter 15, they are celebrating and praising God for delivering them through the Red Sea. You know what they're doing in Exodus 16, one chapter later? Complaining and grumbling. In one chapter, they go from faith to doubt. We see this throughout the Psalms. Lots of Psalms have people struggling with doubt. People are saying, God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why, why can't I feel you? Why can't I sense you? You seem so far away. When are you going to bring justice? And most of these Psalms, they actually kind of resolve by the end. It gets to the end of the psalm, and the psalmist is like, God, now I see your goodness. God, now I see your presence. But not Psalm 88. You know how Psalm 88 ends? The psalmist says this, the darkness is my only friend. That's how Psalm 88 ends. God put this in the Bible. What does this tell us about God? It tells us a lot. It tells us that God knows that we will experience doubt and he wants us to talk to him about it. God does not say, 
I don't want this kind of talk in my Bible. <laughs> and I don't, want, I don't want to be in relationship with people who pray to me like this. God says, I know you will experience this. This is a normal part of the Christian life. And this ought to do three things for you this morning. Number one, it ought to encourage you. See, if you feel weak and inconsistent in your faith, you are not alone. You are not alone and God is not surprised. You might be surprised, God is never surprised. That ought to encourage you. It ought to, second, it ought to drive you to God's word. So often, when doubt begins to sink in, what happens? It's, it's, it, it drives us away from God's word. That's when we stop listening, we stop reading. But it ought to do the exact opposite. Because in the Bible, not only do we find people who doubt like we do, but we find God gives us words for our doubt. That's what the Psalms are, words for your doubt. It ought to encourage you. It ought to drive you into God's word. And then last, it ought to push you towards community. Um, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. And I have watched a lot of people walk away from Christianity. And I'll tell you that most people who walk away from Christianity, it's not because they just woke up one morning and thought, I don't believe anymore. It's more like this slow, gradual drift. And it comes on the heels of isolation and disconnection from other Christians. So when doubt begins to sink in, what happens? It t it, we tend to isolate. It pushes us away from community. It actually needs to do the exact opposite. It needs to push you deeper into community. Sunday, sun, being here on Sunday mornings ought to become even more of a priority for you in those seasons. Uh, showing, being a part of a community group in those seasons ought to be even more of a priority to you. Cannot, cannot navigate doubt alone. You cannot navigate it by yourself. If you do, in my experience, it tends to lead to a slow, gradual drift. You've got to let other Christians into your life and this needs to be a church where we can actually be honest about our doubt, where we don't have to pretend. Um, this brings us to the third snapshot of faith. Uh, faith means resting in the Savior's hand. And when Peter cries out, what does he say? He says, Lord, save me. And this is the starting point of faith in Jesus, friends. Peter, you know, notice this. Peter doesn't say, um, God, I'm, I'm trying really hard here and I need you to help me a little bit. I need you to meet me halfway. This is how people talk about God sometimes. Have you ever heard someone say, God helps those who help themselves? You ever heard that? Have you ever said that? That is nowhere in the Bible. That's not a verse. It's not a verse in the Bible. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who cannot save themselves. Amen. Friends, a Christian is not someone who thinks they need a little help. A Christian is someone who thinks they need rescue. And just look what Jesus says to Peter. Peter cries out to Jesus, but look at the very first thing 
that the text says. Verse 31 says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Immediately. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus saves Peter not after Peter has resolved his doubt. Jesus saves Peter in the midst of his doubt. Jesus doesn't save Peter because he has perfect faith. He saves Peter despite the fact that he doesn't. What is this snapshot teaching us? Here's what it's teaching us. It's teaching us that our confidence is not our grip on God, but it is God's grip on us. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. Friends, your faith and my faith, it's weak. It ebbs and it flows. But Jesus, who is the object of our faith, is strong. And he never changes. And I just love that this is in the Bible. What is this saying? It is saying, you do not have to have perfect faith to be a Christian. Jesus loves doubters. That is such good news. That is good news for me this morning. And if you know yourself, I think it'll be good news for you. Faith is not about our grip on him. It is about his grip on us. Now, what does that mean for our lives? It means if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the invitation for you today is to rest in God's strong hand to save you. I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts this. He says, true faith has nothing whatever of merit about it. It is but laying hold of a Savior's hand. It brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful person's soul. It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. Every other religion says, God helps those who help themselves. Do these things, follow these laws, obey these rules, and God will love you. And Christianity alone says, all you must do is rest. Rest not in your work, but in Jesus' finished work and in his perfect work and in his atoning death on your behalf and in his resurrection. It says that your confidence in God does not lie in anything that you do, but in everything that he has already done for you. That's the invitation for you this morning if you're not a Christian. It is to rest in God's strong hand to save you. If you are a Christian, here's what this means for your life. The invitation to you today and every day is to rest in God's strong hand to care for you and to catch you. Henry Nouwen, who was a great Christian writer, in his later years, when he got older, uh, he became fascinated with the circus. And he used to go observe the circus to learn lessons about the spiritual life. And one day he was observing the flying trapeze artist. He was watching how one person was the flyer and one person was the catcher. He said after the circus, he, he, uh, he said to the flyer, he said, I'm struck 
by your success as you attempt these dangerous feats. What is the secret of your success? And the guy said this. He said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the greatest star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And now and said to him, well, how does this work? And the guy said, the secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. And when I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. Now and said, you do nothing? He said, I do nothing. The worst thing a flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. It's not my task to catch him. It is his task to catch me. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch, and a flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for them. What a picture of faith. God's part is to catch us. To do in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our part is to trust God. It is to wait on God. And that is not easy. But it is what God has called us to do. There was a young man who once said to Mother Teresa, he said, would you pray for me? She said, how can I pray for you? He said, pray for clarity. She said, young man, I no longer ask God for clarity. I only ask God for trust. So where do you need to trust God today? Some of us, we feel like, (laughs) we feel like Peter in this moment where he is sinking and drowning and that's how we feel in life right now. And maybe, maybe, it's, maybe you don't know how you're going to pay the bills this month. Maybe you are single and lonely and longing for a spouse. Maybe you have a child who is going through something you never could have imagined. Maybe you feel overcome by depression, anxiety, an eating disorder, mental illness. Maybe you're facing a really scary diagnosis. Where do you need to trust God's hand? Where do you need to rest in his strong hand? Where do you you need to rest in his care for you? Where do you need to rest in his love for you? And in his promises to you? Where do you need to believe that God will catch you? Because this is what God does. He catches people. He helps people who cannot help themselves. And that brings us to the last snapshot of faith, which is faith means going out to the crowds. Um, There's a version of Christianity that ends with verse 33. And that version says that, here's what faith is. Faith is just your ticket to heaven. It's your get-out-of-hell-free card. That's what faith is. Faith is only vertical. It's just something between you and God. See, but I don't think it's an accident that this passage about faith 
ends with verses 34 through 36. When they hit land, Jesus takes Peter and the other disciples and they go out to the crowds and they begin to heal people. And this is what the Bible calls living faith, friends. It's when faith goes from just being vertical to being horizontal. It's when faith goes from just loving God to also loving others. It's living faith. The book of James, James chapter 2, verse 14, puts it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Here's what this snapshot is teaching us. True faith is always accompanied by good works. Works of mercy, works of justice, works of generosity, concern for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good deeds. And you know, you might read verses 34 through 36 and think, well, I cannot do things. I could never do things like that. And Jesus says, you're right. You'll actually do even greater things than that. Listen to John 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Think about everything that Jesus did. And they will do even greater things than me because I am going to the Father. Think about that. How could we possibly do greater things in Jesus? Jesus walked on water. Anybody done that? If, if Jesus means by greater things, if he means more sensational things, that makes no sense. But, but if he means by greater things, things that are more numerous and more widespread, that makes total sense. Why? Because look at this. He says, you'll do even greater things than me because I'm going to the Father. When Jesus was on earth, he could only be in one place at one time. But when he ascended to the Father and sent his spirit, what does that mean? It means that he is now in many places at once. How? Through us. So when we go out into the crowds and into our places of work and into our schools and into our neighborhoods and into our city, and we seek to meet the physical and the emotional and the spiritual needs of others by caring for the poor and those in need, and when we're generous with our time and our money, and when we work for healing and justice, we are living out our faith, and we are doing even greater things than Jesus because we are his hands and his feet and his very presence in this city. And no longer is he just in one place at one time, but now he is in he is all over this city all the time. And the question is, is what is going to get you and me to live like that? To have a living faith? And the answer is this table. 
Uh, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and along the city of St. Louis run the banks of the Mississippi River. And along the banks of the Mississippi River uh, are these giant sand dunes. They're actually formed by barges that, that drudge the bottom of the river, and then they deposit all the sediment on the banks. And it forms these giant sand dunes that look fun, but they are so dangerous. Because when the, the sand that gets deposited on the banks of the river, when it begins to, to dry out, the water begins to, it, it, it seeps out through the bottom of the sand. And what happens is it, it forms these giant invisible holes just underneath the surface of the sand. And there's this really famous story of one day, uh, two young brothers who went out to play on these sand dunes and they did not come home. And after several hours, uh, there was a search party that was sent out for them. And after several hours of searching, they, they, they came upon the younger brother. He was buried in the sand up to his neck, totally unconscious. And as they began to dig him out, he, he came to and they said, Where, where's your older brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. And he survived but his older brother didn't. And friends, when we come to this table, we have an older brother who gave his life for ours. Jesus died so that we could live. In this passage, he saves Peter from this storm, but on the cross, he would plunge himself into the storm of God's judgment. He would take our place. And you know, to the degree that you really believe that, you will start to trust God in ways you never could have imagined. If God would do that for you, what is there in your life right now that you cannot trust him with? And to come to this table is to stand on the strong shoulders of Jesus. And it is to rest in his strong hand. Some of us here today are saying, I don't know if I should come to this table because my faith feels so weak. Friends, what gets you to this table is not great faith. What gets you to this table is a great and faithful Savior who loved you and who gave himself for you and who came to rescue you and who wants to cultivate in you a living faith and to send you out to be his presence in this world so that others might be blessed. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what good news there is for us at this table. We all come as a mixture of belief and unbelief. We all come trusting you and doubting you at the same time. And yet what we find at this table is a God who welcomes us. 
A God who says we are welcomed not because we have been faithful, but because you always are faithful. Not because our faith is strong, but because you are strong and you are gracious and you are mighty. So would you give us faith to believe that this morning? That we are welcomed in all of our doubt. And would you help us to be people who trust you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.